The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Garrett Gunderson. Garrett, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on, Garrett. Uh, Garrett is an entrepreneur uh, and financial advocate and founder of Wealth Factory. Garrett brings energy and excitement to debunking the many wildly accepted myths and fabrications that undermine the prosperity and joy of millions of business owners and aspiring business owners. We were just chatting briefly before we started recording. This is such a challenge, these financial myths that we're going to get into some of them today. Uh, Garrett is a New York Times bestselling author of the book, Killing Sacred Cows, and more recently, which I just read in preparation, uh, what would the Rockefellers do? Actually, that's not the one I read. The one I read is the one I have up here in front of me, uh, which is the ones we're going to take some. What well, is Killing Sacred Cows? Yeah, Killing Sacred Cows, Overcoming the Financial Myths that are destroying your prosperity. So we're going to dive into that one. Awesome. Anyway, best-selling author, obviously, of a couple of different books. Um, Garrick makes the personal finance, uh, excuse me, he makes personal finance for entrepreneurs simple and immediately actionable, which is something we're always looking for on this show. How do we take, you know, the stuff that we read in books and make it actionable for us as individuals and small business owners? So that's one of the things he does extremely well. And the book, which I had the pleasure of reading in preparation, lays that out very clearly, which is a great takeaway for me. Garrett lives in Salt Lake City area with his family. So again, in this episode, Garrett's going to share his interesting journey, how he got to where he is today. And then we'll dive into a couple of these myths related to finances and financials uh, as it relates to our personal finances and our small business finances. So once again, Garrett Gunderson, welcome to the show. That's a mouthful that you had to go through, but the good news is uh, now that we're through it, we can get to the to the you know heart of the matter. Put some act, put some items that they could put on the ground immediately to improve their financial life. And uh, even though this is finance, this isn't about budgeting or scrimping or taking money away. It's about adding money to, capturing wealth along the way, and uh, finding some automated infrastructure to to support it. Yep. I love it. Yeah. A great way to put it. And so I'm excited to have you here today. Uh, but I wanted to start a little bit with your journey. Uh, Garrison Gunderson, Garrett Gunderson Car Care. What was that? <laughs> yeah. My first business when I was 15 years old, my dad was a coal miner. My mom worked at a credit union and I, I would clean the vehicles on the surface of the mine when the bosses would come to town and the repossessed vehicles at the credit union. And uh, at 15 years old, started a business out of my dad's garage with his his supplies, but being in sports, it kind of gave me an opportunity to make some money without having kind of a full-time or part-time job interfere with that. Had a lot more flexibility. And I actually, I did pretty well considering, you know, at the time, the amount of money that my friends made, 
and I, I was kind of a miser. I saved up most of that money mm, and ended up winning. Yeah, I ended up winning Young Entrepreneur of the Year and won five thousand bucks, and that's how I got in the investing world. Was wow. really as a pivot from that business. That's a, that was a lot of money at that time, and and at that age. I thought I was rich when they handed me the check, man. I was like, this is awesome. I was like, oh, who else made $5,000 in this moment? Not realizing the rest of the world, there was a lot of people. But for me, it was a big deal, for sure. No, no, that was a big deal. So you went on to college to study finance. And I think I read somewhere in the research that, and I'm curious as to if this was part of it, um, that, that you were trying to live up to your parents and your grandparents' expectations. And I got to think going and getting a college degree was part of that. Is that right? Yeah, there's no doubt that like it wasn't even really like an option in my house. We, you were going to go to college. You know, it was just part of the plan. Um, and even when I was in college and I'm running this uh, business in the financial services, when I started when I was 19, like my family was like, when are you going to get a real job? You know, I had all these job offers in 99, which I pretty much would have been miserable at any of them, but they were, they had good pedigree or, or, you know, the right kind of things that seemed exciting to some of my professors and my family. But I chose to kind of go this entrepreneurial path, even though I didn't really have a lot of family other than my great grandfather who began as an entrepreneur when he left Italy in 1913 to be a, a goat herder. And then he actually succumbed to the coal mines just to get enough money to bring his family over seven years later. So um, I think that we kind of w got this scarcity mindset ingrained in our family based upon some of those experiences. And it, it took some effort and it was pretty painful for me to make the different choice initially, but it's been the most rewarding choice I've made. Yeah. So do you, did you have to overcome that scarcity mindset at some point, or do you feel like from early on, you figured that out or when do you think that clicked for you? Oh, I was a, I was a total miser. When I had my Garrett Gunnarsson's car care business, I saved almost every dollar that I made. I didn't want to spend it on anything. And when I was first married, I'm still lucky to be married because I was on the <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge method of money management, just scrimp and save and keep every dollar. We lived in an apartment, even though we own 14 apartments. Uh, we, you know, we like I, we go on vacation and spend less money on food there than when we were at home. So I definitely had that scarcity. It's just that I decided that I was going to invest a lot more into relationships and ideas and personal development rather than just stocks, bonds and investing time in a job that I hated. And that work and the associations and people that I met and the willingness to have some self-awareness and some critical like, you know, just looking at things that my family didn't really look at themselves I started to even recognize it was scarcity because they didn't even know it was. They just thought that was the reality. Mm -hmm. And I saw this whole world of innovation and ingenuity and value creation and abundance and profitability. And it, and it was enticing and intoxicating. And I still had bouts and moments of scarcity. But now the default's abundance. And when I do have those you know, scarcity thoughts come in, I just can recognize them. And I have two very profound methodologies to get out of scarcity. Okay. And we're going to dive into those. But, but what I'm curious about is how do you balance? Because the flip side of it could have been that you end up being like a lot of people, which is I'm just going to spend, spend, spend and, you know, spend beyond my means and beyond my paycheck. And so it's, it, there is a lot of positive to having been a saver. Would you still consider yourself conservative as it, as it comes to your money, as to how you save your money? Or is it is it that mind shift to investment versus savings? I'm just trying to understand because you still are probably very careful in how you spend your money, 
but you're not as miserly. Is, is my, am I getting it there? Yep, you, you are. And this framework might help. Everyone's been taught that they should live within their means. And I think that's good counsel. But when I first heard it, I only thought about budgeting and cutting mm-hmm. back. Right. But no one shrinks their way to wealth. So now I look at living with my, in my means as two other things. How can I be more efficient? How can I save on tax, on interest, on non-performing investment fees or unnecessary insurance costs? Like just keep more of what I make. And then how do I expand my means? So I spend more money than I've ever spent before, but I never spend more than I make. Mm-hmm. And I, I just do something very simple. I take 18% off the top put it in a separate account. So I automate my savings. And then I make sure that I don't go out of bounds and spend more than what I make with the rest of the money. And one sixth of the money that I save off the top, I set into a living wealthy account, which means guilt free spending. Mm -hmm. If I want to buy clothes, I want to buy expensive wine, I want to go nice, get a really nice meal, we want to fly lay down seats to Europe, like if that money's in that account, no, no question, we do it. We know that we're not harming ourselves financially. As a matter of, matter of fact, we're actually getting to enjoy the money we make along the way. Benjamin Franklin said, wealth isn't the man that has it, but the man that lives it. And so I feel like I found a harmony point or I found a better way to, you know, I, I, I spend more than I have in the past, but I save way more than I have in the past because I just make a lot more money by thinking about living within my means as adding more value rather than cutting back. Yeah, yeah, that's great, great insight there. All right, so after college, you went into real estate investment, as you kind of hinted at there a little bit, and so that's what you did until until you founded Freedom Fast Track. Or just tell me briefly about that period of time. Yeah, so when I was graduating college, I got offers at like Strong Investments. They were the number two fund family at the time. They're out of business now. Merrill Lynch, we've heard about their problems. <laughs> Arthur Anderson then was Anderson, now was nothing. Mm-hmm. Like it's funny because. All the things that felt like the secure path as far as my family was concerned was actually some of the more dangerous territory. So I created my own program because when I began in financial services, I was nothing more than a product peddler selling life insurance and mutual funds. And I started to question things when the market went down in 2000, 2001 and 2002. And that was the beginnings of writing this Freedom Fast Track program which was really an insight I got when I was 22 and I walked into a family office in New York City and I saw attorneys, accountants, you know, investment advisors, fiduciaries, like a whole gamut of people sitting around a table as advocates for a family to make sure that their finances were in order. And I was like, crap, this is amazing. It's due diligence. They're they're coordinated. And that was kind of the first part of building Freedom Fast Track, which was really built for for business owners that aren't worth the $50 million or more that it takes to get that level of service. I wanted to bring it to the people that most of their money is tied back into their business, reinvest in their business, understanding they were the best asset. And also just realizing no amount of luck or saving or discipline or return or financial advisors saves someone if they can't conquer the scarcity mentality. So I built Freedom Fast Track knowing the person is the asset, not the stock or bond or real estate. And that whatever I could do to support them, to have financial efficiency, financial foundation, and give them permission to focus on the things that they love to do the most. Like I found that I was more of an artist creating that program than a, I didn't feel fulfilled being a product peddler selling products. Mm, interesting. Okay. And then Wealth Factory is an evolution of that? Or did you start over with a new program? I was, wasn't quite clear on that path there. So Wealth Factory is an evolution of that. And the way that it came about in 2014, I was thinking about like, what what am I really up to? Like, what 
what really matters. And it was like the next iteration of my vision. And I, you know, I remembered reading about JFK getting on TV in 1961 and saying that we're going to, you know, return, or we're going to send a man to the moon and return him home safely within the decade. Like that was a pretty compelling vision. And I was like, I don't know that my vision is that compelling. So what is it going to take to engage at a different level? And, and I started to just go through, okay, you don't get a second chance to create a, a legacy that lasts. Um, you know, economic independence is one of the biggest advantages anyone can have in their financial life because they can swing it for the fences in what they do. People can retire in their business rather than front. So I'm just going through all these kind of vignettes and ideas. And I said, what's going to matter is if I could get a million entrepreneurs to economic independence, that's a vision worth worth being part of. And Wealth Factory, I realized with what I had in Freedom Fast Track, I was only working with like 125, at most 250 people a year. That was our capacity. I see. So Wealth Factory was, we wanted to have a digital portfolio, like videos and and weekly publications and resources. I write for Forbes and all this. I I merged and brought in some people that had that skill set so we could reach so many more people. But Freedom Fast Track is still our flagship program that we take people through one-on-one to achieve economic independence, have a comprehensive financial team, keep more of what they make, get their financial house in order, and scale their business. So Wealth Factory extended my reach massively, just massively with a great team. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Now, the book that, that we're going to dive into a little bit here, Killing Sacred Cows, I think you initially released that in 2008. Is that right? The first the first uh, version of it or whatever they call it? Well, the first published version, yes. In April of 2007, I did a self-published Killing Sacred Cows with a brown cover and, 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 and 5,000 copies. And then shortly after that, got picked up by a publisher. And it took us about a year to release it with the publisher with the the version that you're holding in your hand or that you see or that you read. Yep. And so the new version, I think, is better. We spend a lot of time thinking about different types of readers, how to engage them, how to give them you know, facts that they need, how to give them stories that others might require because we thought this book could do well if it gets great word of mouth. How do you get great word of mouth? Get people to read it. How do you get people to read it? Just have a have there's different types of readers. I mean, there's a lot of thought process that went in. But yeah, August of 2008 is when it was officially released and hit the New York Times and and was a published version of my first book. Yes, yeah, fantastic. I love the way it's organized by by the myths because Again, it's a book I could read cover to cover like I did in preparing, but I can go back and dive into one particular area that maybe I'm struggling with or somebody I'm helping is struggling with, just like I'm going to pick out a couple of them for us to talk about here. So I love the way it's laid out. Um, it's interesting. So many of these myths, though, it, it, these are, as you say, they're, they're so ingrained uh, in us different ways, right? And and you talk about some of that, of course, as you introduced the book. But let's start there where where you have learned and observed in having thought about this now for a number of years, helping people overcome these, where does a lot of this come from for us as Americans? A lot of it comes from just the entire, like that we, we are sold that finance is complicated and that we're, we have billions of dollars of marketing to think investing is synonymous with stocks and bonds and that business is risky. It becomes part of the, the memes and the social conversations. And I think that it really happened deeply after the Great Depression. And mm-hmm. it gets passed on from generation to generation because I think about my great-grandfather coming over in 1913, just before the Great Depression and when the U.S. Tax Act comes about, the Revenue of Act, and all of a sudden he gets over here 
and the streets weren't quite paved just with gold like he originally thought, there you get a lot of scarcity. And then that you, you know, you ha- as a kid, you see your parents go through that. You face that. They have things they tell you. All of a sudden, you feel that almost at a cellular level, and you want to protect the next generation because in the in the Great Depression, people lost their homes because there were different rules. If you were making your house payment, but they wanted to call your note due, they could call your note due. And if you couldn't afford to pay it off, you lost your home. In today's world, if you're making your payment, they can't just come and call that note due on you. It's different rules. But at the same time, it elicited emotions that stay with us to generations today. Mm -hmm. And then with all that marketing, misinformation, I think the number one culprit behind it all is just fear and ignorance. If we look at fear and ignorance, almost all myths that have a stronghold on our mind or limit our wealth come from past experiences, either family, friends, preachers or teachers. And all of a sudden that becomes part of our viewpoint and perspective sometimes too. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and it's interesting because at, at home, at least, I certainly it was my experience, we, we were able to see, in my case, I was able to see my parents model certain behaviors, but it was never taught to us, certainly never really taught in school. And we've, we've kind of taken whatever little we were teaching about, you know, even how to manage a checking account, we've taken that out of the school system. So I, I don't know what your experience was, but I didn't get taught any of these things. All I said, all I overheard were the myths that get that get repeated, right? Yep, totally. All right, so the we touched already, but I want to dive into first the, the first myth, the finite pie, which is this idea of, of of having this scarcity mentality. So let's dive in a little bit deeper into that, especially again from a small business owner's perspective or someone who's thinking about becoming a business owner. What do you see there as to how it manifests itself, that that scarcity mentality when it comes to a business owner or someone who's thinking about becoming a business owner? Well, if we get into a budgetary mindset or a constraint mindset where we're looking to cut back, then sometimes people won't make the proper investments in the right people, mm-hmm. the right processes to support those people, or the right procedures that come about because of technology that help us to be even more efficient. It's where people get into a saving mindset and a reductionist mindset instead of a production mindset. And see, there's three measures of worth. There's the price we pay, the cost, which is the economic impact, and the value, which is the overall feeling of satisfaction. And if we don't differentiate between price, cost, and value, business owners, if they get overly sensitive about price, a lot of times they miss out on opportunity. Like a perfect example is if people hire cheaply rather than hire amazing people. Mm-hmm. Hiring amazing people costs more, but they produce so much more. IBM said it was 5,200% more when you hired A-teamers. Steve Jobs said it was a 100 to 1 return when he hired an A-teamer. So we have one of the most amazing advantages, but if people get into a mindset of cutting back, doing everything themselves, they hit this kind of ceiling of their production, and their bandwidth starts to get eliminated, or they hire people that actually start to create additional worry and fear and frustration and lack of production. And therefore, they're not thinking about what's possible. They're just cleaning up messes all the time. And so I think that if we look at people as the only true assets in this world, and we're willing to invest in people, we can have extraordinary things happen. And that just numbers on a piece of paper are only part of the story. And some people use that as the only part of their story. So they're just they're pinching pennies till they get blisters on their fingers. Yeah, no, very well said. I agree with with all of it, and I and I can think of so many different examples. And and as you say in the book as well, investing in people, including yourself. But as you touched on, one of the ways I often see this manifest, and I've even struggled with it myself, 
Is it, it things like, you know, do we hire an assistant or not? Or do we look at that as an expense yep. or as an investment? All of those things beginning to delegate. And nowadays we have the ability to, to outsource that through, uh, through online sources, through elancing and, and all those kind of things. So, but we hold ourselves back because I, because as you articulate, we bring to it, even though we become business owners, we still kind of manage it as our, as a job instead of this asset that we're building, aren't we? Totally. And, you know, like I, I love that business is three dimensional. You could build cash flow, and the less that cash flow is required with you doing direct activities, the more equity you build. The more equity you build, the more value that's held that could be, you know, redeemed in the future. And the third thing is the third dimension is we can have fulfillment. If we can stop doing everything in the name of saving money, like mm-hmm. the word scale, I look at it like putting a ladder up against a building. To scale that building, you let go of one rung and you grab a higher rung. That's all we got to do in business. What are the things right now that you're not great at, that drain your energy, that you might consider minutiae, that you might say is the necessary evil? If you can delegate that, but not in a task that comes back to you when the task is done. When you hire people and delegate roles to them, Mm -hmm. that they own that role. So you have true freedom. Like my life got exponentially better when I could do more writing, more speaking, more podcasts, more content creation and more relationship building and thinking about the what and the why instead of the how and the when. When I stop getting into operations, one-on-one coaching and sales and processes and procedures, now I'm putting out a book every single year rather than after Killing Sacred Cows. It was years before the next book came out Mm -hmm. because I got caught up in all that busy work in the name of saving money. But now we're producing more by embracing the things that I feel most uniquely gifted at that I enjoy the most, that are most leverageable, and the things I wanted to be doing anyway. It doesn't mean I get to do everything I want to do every day in business. I still have to deal with certain meetings and certain breakdowns and certain issues, but I found ways to empower others to handle it so that I don't have to get trapped in the one to always being the problem solver. That's the hiring the great people. That's letting go of the lesser things that aren't lesser for someone else. It might be the thing that they love to do most. Things that we hate, other people strangely love. And things that we love, other people hate. There's people that would never want to get on a stage or be on a podcast. I love doing that stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't agree with you more there. And again, it's a challenge, understandably, for those who are listening who have been like myself, where we, when we first get started and we have limited resources Again, though, that's even early on, I think, Garrett, when we have to check ourselves as to whether we are bringing forward those myths, those preconceptions as to what that really means, right? Right. And how quickly can we invest so that we can start doing what we're best at, you know, get into our our, our strategic area and, and start leveraging what we're good at and what we enjoy doing. Hi, this is Henry Lopez. If you are listening to this podcast, then you are the type of person who is always looking to learn something of value. You are the type of aspiring entrepreneur or existing small business owner who would benefit the most from an exciting online event taking place this April. I'm thrilled to share with you the three-day MBA online summit event, where you can learn all about how to take your business to the next level from many of the top business minds in North America. I am excited and privileged to be one of the presenters at the three-day MBA virtual event, but I'm also thrilled to be a participant and learn as much as I can to help me grow my own small business. Not to mention the valuable networking opportunities, 
and the energy and motivation that comes from connecting with other like-minded people like you. The online three-day MBA 2018 event is going to be action-packed. You'll be submerged into three days of intense business training that will give you new ideas on how to grow and manage your business more effectively without the expense and time of travel. The speakers have been carefully chosen to offer you a wide array of subjects, including mindset, marketing, branding, and much more. You can get all of the details on the three-day MBA event at our website at thehowofbusiness.com. I look forward to connecting with you at this event in April. All right. So when you talk about cash flow, I, I think that's then what you're talking about. Did you just explain that by by bringing in others to do things that probably can do it even better than we can, we generate more cash and improve the cash flow. But what are other ways that you've seen either that a myth holds us back or that you've been able to help small business owners improve cash flow? Well, and here's here's another thing to take into consideration. Sometimes we need to delegate things that we can do better than everyone else mm-hmm. that's, that, that is in our firm. And maybe they can only do it at 80%, but it still makes sense to delegate because of the things that no one else can do that are most valuable. So that was just the first part of the question. What you're really asking is, what are some other things we could do? I think that there's four I's that if business owners, the letter I, focus on, are going to help them out with cash flow. Number one is the IRS. One of the biggest line items, one of the biggest partners in your business is the IRS. And 93% of business owners overpay and tip the government. So getting that money back adds to the bottom line. For every half million of revenue, we find it's about $11,470 right to the bottom line that people are overpaying. Number two, interest. 80% of people are overpaying on interest if they have more than one loan, either because they don't have the right credit score, which needs to be above 780, the right collateral, the right connections to get the best loans, or the right cash flow reporting. And there's ways to renegotiate interest there's ways to restructure interest, and there's ways to be very strategic about which loans you pay extra and which ones you pay the minimum to called the cash flow index. Even further, there's a process inside of that called cash flow optimization, where you start differentiate your expenses between destructive expenses that you eliminate, lifestyle expenses that you always pay cash for, protective expenses, which you make sure to have to address risks so that when there's a financial surprise, it doesn't derail you. That's everything from insurance to corporate structure to liquidity to um, asset protection. And then the other expense is a productive expense. Put a dollar into a marketing initiative, more than a dollar comes out, that's a productive expense. Mm-hmm. Hire the right person, as we mentioned earlier, that's a productive expense, right? So the, the interest that you know, we find tons of people are overpaying. Then the third eye is investments. So many people pay more in investment fees that are non-performing that don't add to their bottom line that confiscate tons of wealth. For example, if you got 10% on hundred grand for 30 years, it would grow to 1.74 million. That's pretty hypothetical, but that's if you do the math, that's what the math says. If you only get 9.2% because you had to pay some fees for a 401k admin or legal fees or 12B1 fees, which are marketing fees, it only grows to 1.4 million. That's a $340,000 cost because of 0.8% fee. If you go down to 8% instead of 10, you're at a million instead of 1.74. That's $740,000. So percentages have a huge exponential cost. 
Compound interest also has compound costs. And the last I is insurance. A lot of people have duplicate coverages, improper structure, and they don't have high enough deductibles. They don't have umbrella policies. They don't have extended elimination periods. So they're paying for inconsequential insurance that's really intended just to protect catastrophic things. So there's so much cash slipping through most people's hands that if they can just plug these leaks and get Wall Street out of their pocket or Uncle Sam out of their pocket or other institutions out of their pocket by knowing what it is they have and having the right eyes to see it, they're going to put so much more money in their life. As a matter of fact, for half a million dollars or less of revenue, not including taxes, we're finding $2,484 per month of improved cash flow just going through these three of the four eyes. It's a pretty big deal. It's a huge deal. And it's a, and obviously, it's now no surprise, Garrett, as I was writing those eyes down, that to all of them, I can apply a lot of why we don't see these things as business owners are these myths that we still live with. Um, a couple that I want to touch on, touch on as well, going back to interest because it relates to debt. And I'd like you to just share with me your your thoughts on debt. Again, a lot of that mentality is that we bring from multiple back generations is, you know, pay off the mortgage as soon as possible. Debt is bad. But there's the truth is that there's good debt and there's bad debts. So I'd like you to chat with us about that briefly, your thoughts on that for small business owners. Well, if you allow me to even maybe drill down deeper, there's efficient loans and inefficient loans. So efficient loans would be if you take the loan balance and divide it by its minimum monthly payment, if it's over 100, it's called a cash flow index, that's an efficient loan. If it's less than 50, it's inefficient, meaning you have a cash hog on your hands. So you take the minimum payment, but you, you take the loan balance, divide it by the minimum payment to determine the cash flow index. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing is, is, just as there's different types of expenses, we have to apply this to loans. So the technical definition of debt is if we look at a balance sheet, it's assets versus liabilities. Add up your assets, add up your liabilities. If you have more assets than liabilities, it's called equity, otherwise known as net worth. If you have more liabilities than assets, it's called debt. Most people call any time they have a loan debt. But what if I could get a $250,000 loan on a business worth a half a million dollars? That's not $250,000 of debt. That's $250,000 of equity Mm -hmm. because I borrowed the money for something productive. Never borrow to consume. Don't borrow money to consume something and have no asset attached to it. That leads towards true debt and what you might have called the the bad debt, right? But don't confuse every time you borrow with debt because sometimes it could be very productive. It depends on who you are, what you're borrowing for. I knew people that borrowed money to put money in the stock market. They do nothing about it. The stock market lost and all of a sudden they still owed money. That's a pretty bad decision. But if you're investing in something aligned with your investor DNA, which is your competencies, your values, it's your drivers, and you stay focused on the things that you know best, now you can truly assess the risk at a greater degree. And you know maybe you're borrowing money to be productive, not destructive or consumptive. And so I always look at, can I make my loans more efficient? I always look at, can I improve my cash flow from that borrowing? And you know what? I don't have a lot of loans in my life. I have a mortgage. And the reason I have a mortgage is because I can earn a higher interest rate than the mortgage costs me 
with high degrees of certainty, and I don't want to tie up that much capital, I could pay off the mortgage if I chose to, but I choose not to because I have a better use of that money. I have no problem that I have borrowed for, for um, business expansion before. I don't, I'm not doing that right now, but it was very clear on our initiatives and the proof of them, and it worked out really well. Now, if we go back when I bought a boatload of real estate that I didn't love analyzing or being involved in, mm. yeah, I lost, I lost on some of that because, mm. yeah, as much as it sounded like an asset, the, ass, the risk is in the invest door, not the investment. What kind of investor am I? Don't borrow to invest in things you know nothing about. That's highly speculative and risky. Be calculated with your borrowing. Know what your payback period is. Understand your cash flow and pay off any loan that's inefficient because that's going to improve your cash flow a lot faster than most investing will. Love it. Great, great insights and practical tips there. Um, you touched on in the other eye that I wanted to ask you about going back to was the investments and the fees. So the challenge, of course, one of the reasons, as you talked about, that we take that route, and of course, <laughs> we're reacting to the, as you said earlier, the millions that are spent in advertising to us to convince us that's right. the way to go, right? That, that the mutual fund or an investor, that they got our best interest at heart. And again, not that those people are fair or cheating us. That's not what I'm trying to say. But as a small business owner, I'm busy. I'm consumed running my business. The last thing I have time to do is learn about investments. Uh, I may continue to pour money back into my business to grow it. So I, I don't know about investments. So what do you say to that business owner who says they're too busy to know how to manage my own investments? You've got to have your foundation handled. Automated infrastructure where you have a, a wealth capture account, which is just a checking money market or savings account that every time you pay yourself personally, money goes in there. If you're not paying yourself first, there's a black hole that happens where business owners spend optimism, or Parkinson's law says that money's going to get gobbled up because your expenses will rise to meet or exceed your increase in income. So there's certain foundational pieces that if you don't take the time, it's going to cost you so much more than what you could produce. Don't get on an entrepreneurial treadmill and think by running faster, you're going to be better off. You're still, you know, if you're paying too much in tax, paying too much in interest, paying too much in investment fees, and not sure what you're doing. The good news is 80% of what you think you have to know in the world of finance, you don't really have to know about. You don't have to know all about real estate investing and tax liens and options trading and oil and gas and IPOs. All you have to know about is you can invest right back into your business, which you do know, but you have to have automatic savings, build up plenty of liquidity, transfer your risk with certain foundational pieces. And if you skip that foundation, you'll be just like skipping a foundation in a home. No matter how beautiful that home is, it's on shaky ground. And 90% of the time when people have financial ruins and devastation and financial surprises, they could have prepared for it with a little bit of prevention in handling the foundation. So don't try to be an expert at all there is to know about investing, but you have to be an expert with your foundation. Have the right car insurance, homeowners, liability, disability, medical, life insurance, business owner policies. Have the right corporate structure, whether it's an LLC, S-Corp, or C-Corp. Have the right automatic savings plan. You don't have to automatically invest because that's a mistake, but you automatically save, have at least six months of liquidity. That's absolutely critical. And we have a whole process called cash flow banking that if you're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about investing, at least you can get five to five and a half percent tax advantage with downside protection. So if you're not going to go deploy that capital, it's better than leaving it in the mattress. But if you just did that in your business, you'll be better off than 90% of the people. But never abdicate your responsibility around the foundation or it will come back to bite you. It will cost you and it will take away wealth that's rightfully yours. You cannot delegate your legacy. 
just like you can't delegate exercise, you know, you can have other people support you to save you time and to do it most efficiently. Same with your finances. You've got to take charge, take control, and know that it doesn't have to be complicated. You just have to get through the basic structures. And I'll, I'll give gifts and resources so people know what those are. Yeah, that's fantastic. Great. Okay, so uh, the other thing that you cover very well in the book, and we can only touch on it here, and I'd like you to just introduce it, but you you lay out kind of a, a formula, I think is what you call it, to going about debunking these myths. In other words, how do I, I've identified, yeah, this this is one of those sacred cows that I've brought forward. Can you just touch on that at a high level? We don't have the time, obviously, to go into in detail. That's what the book is for. But just at a high level, and, and maybe from the perspective of how you help people get over a myth or even maybe identify that it's a myth that you need to overcome. There's a couple of things. I mean, with killing sacred cows, you always have with sacred cows footprints of success or failure. Mm. And, and so there's three major chapters in that book. The first one being the finite pie chapter, where we help people de- detect and understand when they're in scarcity. Anytime you're in survival, anytime you're in selfishness, those are two key indicators that you're in scarcity. But we actually have lists of you're in abundance when, you're in scarcity when. And you know what? If you're not sure, have mentors and peers that you talk to because they'll be able to see it. Um, That chapter is essential. There's two more chapters. We already hit on a little bit with debt. That chapter on debt in there is pretty pretty revolutionary and I think frees people's minds and they get a lot more production after that. And the chapter on self-insurance and the myth there that gets people locking up their money, unfortunately, or spending it unnecessarily on inconsequential insurance, that what that does is that's another freedom factor of a paradigm shift. And so I, I, I just, in that book, I wanted to give people the chance to succeed by detecting and understanding where the landmines were, because myths are never obvious lies. Obvious lies we know to avoid. It's Mm -hmm. always the subtle lies that are like a feather to the face rather than a brick to the face. So I want people to detect that feather so they go, wait, wait, that's a myth, that's a lie. And when they know those nine, they can think better for themselves and create the life that they want. Like here's like it's this whole it takes money to make money. That's a complete myth. There's a formula that I share. It doesn't take money to make money. It takes value creation. It takes service, solving problems. That if you want more financial capital, it's a function of more mental capital and relationship capital. And the bridge between mental and relationship capital, where you take your ideas, systems, tools, knowledge, wisdom, and bring it to the value of people, networks, organizations, you know, um, individuals, families. Well, that's it it, it takes mental relationship capital to make money. So I want people to see past these kind of crippling myths that have just been handed down for generations. Because what I see is a lot of times they go, you know, I could never put words to it, but now now it makes sense. That's a big Mm -hmm. common thing. Or, you know what, that... That's how I thought, but I couldn't find anyone else that thought that way. Because if you're an entrepreneur, I, I didn't come from an entrepreneurial family. And I see a lot of other entrepreneurs that didn't either. So we almost feel and seem like outcasts or weirdos. And this book makes you feel like you're in it together with someone. And you know what? You don't have to do anymore that everyone else is telling you have to do. That's actually slowing you down. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. All right. Again, the, the book is called Killing Sacred Cows, Overcoming the Financial Myths That Are Destroying Your Prosperity. I think it's it's a must read. Uh, even for myself, I've been in business for a while. I, I, had, I was familiar with most of these myths, but there's some that I'm still overcoming. You know, it's, it's a process because it, to your point, as you started explaining that, 
it's it's the obvious stuff is easy. These are deeply ingrained often, and um, it's they're not easy to overcome without some help. Totally. Um, so you mentioned at the outset one of the the goals or mission you have for yourself and for Wealth Factory is to uh, to help a million entrepreneurs build their wealth architecture by twenty twenty. Yep. So I, I get that. That's your vision. That's your focus. But today, what what do you love most about what you do? I love when I get to actually meet the people that we work with and hear their stories. Like we hosted this summit. And when we did the summit, it was just awesome because people are hugging us. They're telling us about their accomplishments, what success they've had. They're bringing gifts. I mean, I like when people bring me gifts like, you know, from the where, <laughs> where they're from. And it's like, I can't tell you how many people that have become friends that we've actually worked with and served. That's rewarding. I don't care about how many books I sell. I do a little bit. But what I really care about is the results that people get and the difference that makes where I know that I've been part of changing their family's financial future, their overall financial destiny. And we got to crack open the most important things about legacy and generational wealth from a values and philosophies standpoint, not just a monetary standpoint. And the, the rituals and traditions and family crests that they set up today rather than never actually addressing. And I just think about how cool that is and how, like, how fun that I get paid to have those kind of conversations. I'll admit, I love when I hold a book in my hands that I wrote for the first time and I read it to someone like just the opening page. I like, you know, I love being able to meet high level influencers that challenge my thinking, bring me new ideas and help me co-create things like that's that's exciting. When I finish a new video, like there's so many like I feel like I get to be an artist in the world of Wealth Factory and creating all these things that actually make a difference. I mean, I do stand up comedy as a hobby that doesn't really make a big difference in the world. But what I do with Wealth Factory does, and I actually get to tell some jokes and have people laugh at me sometimes while I'm teaching them finance. I mean, how often do people laugh and have a good time when they learn finance? I love that I'm bringing that brand out there in the world. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. What, the stand-up comedy, what, uh, what have you learned from that that you apply to business? Well, what I've learned is like when I went to my first open mic – I'm listening to other people and they were just, they were nervous and they were like, they weren't articulate. They were kind of mumbling. And when I speak, I speak really fast, but speaking fast isn't a problem as long as I'm articulate. So I started being like, okay, I got to make sure I'm enunciating everything. Second mm -hmm. is I would get up there and I'd have all these jokes, but rather than just get up and tell jokes and be in my head, which isn't enjoyable at all really until it's over. When I did my open mic, like I just did a set um, a few nights ago in front of four or 500 people. And man, it was awesome because I was just watching the crowd, listening to their reaction, messing with them, totally present. And then, you know, so when I get up and now I'm doing my events, I, I can tell a joke to kind of keep people connected, entertained in the middle of teaching them finance. And it, and it, you know what, it's just helped me build a ton of relationships, adding comedy. Cause I actually, where I was at this mastermind and the, the chefs were late making the meal. And so the person in charge of the mastermind said, Hey, do you want to do some stand up? I've spoken to this group before. I'm like, sure. So I just do like 10 minutes to stand up. I met more people that night because they came up and talked to me about it. So it's just when you, the other thing is like, when you challenge yourself, like I'm like, I was nervous when I went up to do my first gig, palm sweat and had to go to the bathroom three or four times, you know, just nervous. And it just stretched me. And it had me do something enticing and exciting. And it just made 
you know, and, and now I'm just telling a lot more jokes while I'm teaching finance in person. So there's, there's been definitely several lessons. I also learned, I mean, I've only been doing this since August of 2017. And wow. I think most people would think I've been a comic for five or 10 years because I'm getting applause breaks and all this. But I learned, hey, man, I hire mentors. Marcus, who was runner up on Last Comic Standing, I hired him. He's phenomenal. He helps me work through the jokes. And, you know, I, I have a safe space to try stuff out that may or may not be funny. And then we can find out whether we're going to keep it or not. And then I could, you know, like I meet with him sometimes every week, sometimes every other week. And it's the same thing I do with finance. I mean, I'm in the world of finance, but I have my own financial um, architect that works with my wife and I, because I want to have that accountability in that meeting space. And I'm a busy entrepreneur too, but we can, like, I'm not as busy as people think at the size of business we have because I've just mm -hmm. delegated so many things that I'm not good at. Love that. Great insights. Thanks for sharing that. All right. We've touched on it. Obviously there's the books, uh, but what are summarized for us, the services that you offer your clients through Wealth Factory? Well, I'd love to, I'd love to hook everybody up at wealthfactory.com forward slash podcast with the books that we talked about, with you know some depth to some of the tax strategies and cash flow strategies and ideas that we shared we've got like seven months of goodies for people that want that Fantastic. they kind of come out to them and uh you know that that's the beginning we just want to give them succinct great information that they could put on the ground and then the services we offer from there are like two and a half day workshops or one-on-one -on -one services where we have the entire financial team helping with the accounting, the legal design, the you know economic independence plan. So there's there's a few different levels that we kind of work at, but I always love to start with just giving them a ton of value up front and then seeing where to go from there. Great. And we'll have a link to that. If you didn't catch that or you're not where you can write, we'll have a link to that on the show notes page for this episode. Just search for Garrett on the website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for offering that. All right, we'll start to wrap it up. Speaking of books, besides your own, is there a book that you've read that you would recommend? Uh, I've read, you know, I, I, I was reading a book every month in a reading, in a reading group, and uh, we've, we've read some pretty phenomenal books. Uh, the one, there was one chapter of one book that really made a huge difference for me, and that was Give and Take by Adam Grant, chapter seven. Just like there's, there's givers on the top, givers on the bottom, and takers in the middle. How do you make sure to be a giver on the top? Um, from a financial and monetary standpoint, it gave me such a huge epiphany that really has made a huge difference in my life. Yeah, it ties all into value creation, doesn't it? It totally does. Yeah, it's, great, great yep. recommendation. Um, do you prefer to read fiction or nonfiction or both? You know, I prefer to read uh, more um, nonfiction, um, primarily because I've got kids and I don't do as much reading as I used to. So <laughs> I'm always looking to kind of like advance my knowledge. Um, I, I did write a, a you know, a, a fiction book um, recent, not too long ago with a, okay. with one of my clients. And in reading that, I realized how effective it was because I found myself wanting to read all the way through. And sometimes when I'm reading business books or other nonfiction, I tip, I typically like skip around a little bit. So yeah. yeah. Comes back to the whole storytelling thing. All right, let's uh, wrap this up here. I could keep talking forever, but uh, time is a constraint always. Uh, one final thing or one thing you want us to take away from this conversation we've had today, Garrett? That there's money out there that's rightfully yours. Have a little bit of financial savvy and insight, and you can put that back into investing in yourself. You're going to be your best investment. 
grow their business, treat yourself as your greatest asset, and then just create an automated infrastructure to capture the wealth along the way. You don't have to know everything there is to know about every type of investment. Get good at one to three of them over your lifetime. You'll be leagues ahead of everyone else and stop gambling. Don't invest in anything you don't know. It's okay to be in cash. Rookies are always invested. Pros sit in cash and wait on the sidelines until the opportunities are ripe and they get really good at saying no. And then they say yes to the right things and it saves them a lot of heartache and a lot of time. Love it. And where would you like us to go online to find out more about you uh, and about Wealth Factory? Uh, I just think, I think wealthfactory.com forward slash podcast or just going to wealthfactory.com are the two best places. Fantastic. We'll have links to that on the show notes page at thehowabusiness.com. Garrett, this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. I learned a lot by reading the book. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today and sharing your your insights and your knowledge. Hey, Henry, thanks for having me, man. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Folks, this is Henry Lopez. You've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. My guest again was Garrett Gunderson. We release episodes every Monday, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at our website at thehowofbusiness.com. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.